I struggle with the word belief. I know what I believe, and, and I could tell you some very foundational pieces to that, but I think we live in a society where belief is, is not something that is appreciated, not something that is intentional, and not something that's certainly taught. Welcome back to the Impact Entrepreneur Show, where we have conversations with entrepreneurs, thought leaders, athletes, best-selling authors who are using their impact moment to have a game-changing impact in the lives of others. Each week, our guest is part of a series such as mindset, leadership, purpose, and in this case, belief. Belief is a powerful thing. Think about it for a moment. Sow a thought, reap an act. That is part of a quote from one of my favorite quotes by Charles Reed. Sow a thought, reap an act. That little space between the thought and the act is a critical time and worth pausing to consider. Essentially, the only thing preventing you from taking action in some way, shape, or form is whether you believe that you are capable of doing it. Not whether you will be successful doing it, but simply whether you believe you are capable. Over the course of the next few weeks, we will take time learning from some of the best minds in this area, and I am excited and I hope you are too. Now enough from me, let's hear about our guests. Growing up, Dr. Colby Jubinville could barely see, and he didn't think he was enough. However, a support system that instilled resilience and perseverance helped him work through the adversity and restore his self-belief. In this conversation, we explore how he was able to make such a powerful transformation, adversity's role in change, and why self-belief is so vital. Colby is an accomplished author, international speaker, professor, business advisor, entrepreneur, and inventor. He holds an academic appointment at Middle Tennessee State University as special assistant to the Dean for Student Success and Strategic Partnership in the College of Behavioral and Health Sciences. This is an incredibly powerful episode. Bust out your pens and paper, take some notes, and brace for impact. Dr. Colby Juvenville, welcome to the Impact Entrepreneur Show. I'm very excited to host you today. Hey, man. Thank you so much for, for allowing me to be here and spend some time with your audience. And hopefully, between our conversation today, they can take a couple things away and, and use it in their day-to-day life and business and, and, and build a bigger future. So thanks for the opportunity to be with you. Absolutely. One of your, I think it might have been one of your students um, at Middle Tennessee who reached out to me to invite you onto the show or to ask if you could be, come onto the show. So it was, it was pretty cool to have one of your students reach out and suggest that you'd be a great guest. And after researching you, it was, it was like perfect timing because I am really interested in the concept of self-belief and restoring self-belief. And I, so I've been doing a lot of research on self-efficacy on self-determination theory, on uh, learned optimism, on all of this stuff, because the entrepreneurial world today focuses more on the importance of having a vision, as as though the vision is the number one reason why you're going to succeed or fail. And that vision is certainly important, but in order to actually have vision, you need to believe that you're capable of achieving something first. And I think that we're, we kind of have a crisis 
amongst all generations today, whether it's a, a Gen X or a baby boomer, a, a millennial or a Gen Z or whatever, where there's this, this crisis of self-belief where people limit themselves and what they're capable of achieving because of learned experiences. So I'm really excited to talk about that. And, and we can dive into all of that stuff. But I always kick things off before we, I know you're jumping at the gun to, to, to get to this, <laughs> but I want to talk about your family first. I want to talk about what it was like growing up in the Jubenville household. Cause I know you have a unique kind of experience to a lot of other people in terms of how your parents thought. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't, it scares me that you know that, but I think that's pretty cool that you know that as well. And I can sit here at 45 and, and know that I'm enough. And my good friend, Jim Hensel, uh, who wrote a book called, uh, the grind, uh, grind your be the quest for purpose. In that book, he says this, in your greatest moment or your darkest hour, will you be enough? Can you count on yourself and can others count on you? And if you had to stand in front of the world and define yourself, what would you say? And when I think about my parents, I think about my parents. In fact, we had this phone call. I had this phone call with my mother here recently. And my mother is still my biggest cheerleader. My mother is still my biggest coach. My mother is still the person that can calm me down. And I'll kind of walk you through some of those things that when you talk about my family and my experience that that really set the expectation and the need for achievement. But I never felt like I was enough. And I think there's there's many reasons for that. And I think there's both good and bad in that. The need for achievement is learned. The need for achievement is learned. And I was born to two educators who taught me the way you take on the world is to become an educator, marry an educator, and educate other people. And that works all the way up until you want these things called lifestyle and freedom. And then you have to sit back and reflect and and figure out how to get paid for your value and not simply your time. And so that's sort of the, the the middle of the story. But you asked specifically about the story itself, and the story itself starts at Mason DeVille Apartments in, in Mobile, Alabama. And my parents, like many parents at that time in life, got divorced. My, I was one. My brother was two and a half, three. And, uh, and my mom was a school teacher making $6,000 a year. And, and I don't want to paint this picture of a sob story, but you truly talk about starting from from zero and working your way up. And so this guy who ultimately married my mom and they're still married today, and and he's just such a tremendous guy. His name's Wayne Williams. I I call what he put me through the the Wayne Williams School for Better Living and Better People. And and he, he taught me in so many different ways the value of bounce back, the value of resiliency, the, the value of sitting in your own pain and feeling it and learning from that feeling of, of what you really want. And if you think about if you think about struggle, and I had a whole lot of it early on growing up, and it was mostly caused by myself, but struggle helps us think better, communicate better, and make better decisions. And so when I was born, I was born with something called remnants of the pupillary membrane. And you probably didn't know this, but when I was born, the doctors told my parents that the best I would probably do is be some kind of functional literate that I was blind, technically blind, and that I would probably spend most of my time living at home. And because of the parents that I had and because of the resiliency that they taught me and because of their commitment to um, 
to continuous improvement, I literally taught myself to see through those cobwebs. And I was reminded of that. You know, I'd never seen them before until I went to uh, a doctor here recently and just had a recent checkup. And he leaned back after he looked into my pupils and he said, can I ask you a question? He said, I said, yeah. He said, how can you see? <laughs> and, and if I'm really being honest with myself, and this is painful to talk about, but it's the truth. I can still remember my mother trying to, we'd be sitting on this brown carpet at 7 South Hathaway in Mobile. And she, she would continue to try to teach me how to read. And my eyes hurt so bad that that I would give up and the pain would become so great that I would go back in my room and I would literally destroy everything in my room. And my mother would let me go through that. And then she would put me, and this is pretty vulnerable to talk about, but she would put me in my clothes in a, a bath of warm water and it would calm me down and my mom would start the process all over again. And so I was I was literally the world's worst student, uh, fit first through through ninth grade. Uh, I, I lacked confidence. I lacked commitment. Um, I lacked uh, focus. Uh, but my parents never gave up, and they put me in in different learning opportunities like this Read Act learning program. And and here's what happened that's so cool. Along the way, some of that stuff started to click. Along that way, I got a little bit of confidence, and along the way, I became a student of the process. And and where I started to do those things was not in the classroom. But it was on the football field and on the basketball court. And I had great coaches at St. Paul's in Mobile. And and those great coaches, along with my parents, who were coaches and teachers as well, did three things for me. They they made me have conversations I didn't want to have. They made me do things that I did not want to do to ultimately become something I didn't think that I'd come. And so when I sit here in front of you and can go without a script, without any sort of um, prompting and tell you these kinds of things, it's because of the commitment that those coaches, those teachers, and my parents uh, built into my life on a daily basis. Wow, that's powerful, you know, and, there, and there's just so much <laughs> that you just dropped there for, for us to kind of ponder. But uh, how old were you when your stepfather entered your life? I, I was one, and... and. Um, and, and he he really truly is he, he has he has such composure he has such patience we I would play a football game and I would get in and and the very first thing and I would I would wait for him to say something to me and he never would say anything to me and I would say well how do you think I did and he said well how do you think you did and and he was just so ahead of his time in letting the experience be the teacher. And so th- they did some things very intentional uh, to me throughout my time that that I really um, held against them. Uh, they made me pay my entire way through school. My dad said, I call his name is Wayne Williams, but I call him my dad. But he said, Kobe, I'm going to give you the same opportunity my dad gave me. I'm going to let you pay me your entire way through school. <laughs> and I was <laughs> I was so mad about that because I went to this. I went to this school down in Mobile, St. Paul's, and I call it the womb of greatness. And I say that sort of tongue in cheek, but we graduate people from St. Paul's like uh, A.J. McCarron and, and Jake Coker and Mark Barron, who are all national championship winners at the uh, the University of Alabama. And so from I'm, I'm from Mobile, and, and we're real proud of our football and, and the capstone there. And I tell people, you know, when we started off, we went two and eight. We, we beat both the Christian schools 
in the uh, Briarwood Christian and Mobile Christian in the state of uh, Alabama. So we set the stage for greatness to come. But, you know, my parents were so ahead of their time in terms of developing self-reliance to the point that there was collateral damage. There, there were years that I did not speak to my parents because of the things that they intentionally did. And I'll give you an example. When I graduated from, from college, from Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi, everything that I owned was, was in the back of a 1986 Isuzu Trooper II. Gold and blue. I'll never forget it. I drove across the street. I had everything I owned for the first time in my life. I had no idea what I was going to do next. There was nothing planned out for my life for the next five minutes, 10 minutes, 10 days, five years. And so I did what what you only could do at that point, the only person you can call. And I called my dad and I said, hey, dad, I got this college degree. What am I supposed to do now? And he started laughing. And this is part of one of the defining moments of the Wayne Williams School for better living and better people. And he said, hold on, let me get your mother on the phone. And I thought, oh man, this is, this, this is not going to go well. And so, <laughs> so he gets her on the phone and, you know, my mom's still being that cheerleader. And she calls me Cole and she's like, what's going on, Cole? And, you know, I asked my mom, I'm talking to dad. I got to get this figured out. I don't know what I'm doing. Just hold on a second. And so he said, now ask me that question again. And I asked him, he said, you got that degree you got from Millsaps, the one you paid for. And I said, yeah, he goes, you got it in your hand. I said, no. And he goes, you got in that car? I said, yeah. He goes, go get it. So I'll go and get it. He said, read it to me. I want to hear it. And I read it to Millsaps College, Jackson, Mississippi, history, BA, COVID. He goes, man, that sounds so good. And we know you're going to be real successful. But quite frankly, we don't care what you do. Just don't come home. And he, <laughs> <laughs> and he, and he hung up the phone. And see, in that moment, in that moment, for the first time in my life, I had to make a gut level decision to go. And so I had a half tank of gas. I had 35 cents. I I literally had no money. I did not have a credit card. And I drove in on fumes into Hattiesburg, Mississippi, where I'd ultimately walk through the double doors where I'd ultimately get my PhD. And I looked at this woman named Dr. Sandy Gangstead, who gave me a chance when nobody else would. And you always recognize the people that give you a chance when nobody else would. And I said, my name's Colby Jubenville. And I'm supposed to do this with my life. I want to coach and teach on an ever-increasing stage. And she looked through that and she said, Jubenville, I remember your name, Millsap's best school in Mississippi. And they had a graduate assistantship. They had just given it to send it to their own P.O. box. And while that may be hard for other people to understand, you got to think about the time and, and, and where we were in life. It was 1994. There, there weren't emails and nobody answers phones on institutions of higher learning. I mean, that's just the way the world works. And so the takeaway to me for the audience is if you want something, the only way you can articulate your value truly is through face to face. And it took me going down there and articulating my value and my emotion for that for her to see that I wanted that scholarship. And I signed it that day. I called my dad. He said, that sounds great. And I go be successful. I lived out of my car for a couple of days and moved into to Jimmy Buffett's room. Uh, and the Kappa Sig house at Southern Miss because it was the only place they let me move in to get started and pay my pay my rent once um, once I got my scholarship. So I ha- I have a couple like follow up questions, you know, because I, one I want to know if you if you have thought as an adult like where your dad's self determined self reliance self awareness came from where, where that came, I mean, like that's, that was a really unique, I'd love to know like a little, little bit about, about that. And then I want to know from your point of view, 
why you think this professor chose you? Okay. Uh, two really good questions. The first one's easy. My dad's dad served for Patton. Oh, well, there you go. And, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. And it's, it's wow. pretty amazing to hear the, um, the, the story of, uh, of what his life was like. And it's even more amazing to hear, you know, my dad was, uh, one of four children. Uh, he was the oldest of, no, I take that back. He was the middle of, of three boys and they grew up in Citroen and he had a little, he had a, a little sister and they grew up in Citronelle, Alabama and Citronelle is this, you know, the dot on the map. And he successfully walked his way out of that. And my dad truly is. My dad wrote a thesis on Russian history at Auburn. And it's just it's just someone that that was enlightened and and used that to play sports, played football, played basketball, but used education as a vehicle to change his life. And, and that that's a very important lesson that he taught me. It's how to use education as a vehicle to change your life, and and you have to couple that education with it, with action as well, and and they model that behavior for me, and so that, that's I think the, the 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 reasons why he was able to give me give me that during the critical times of my life when I need it, and then Sandy Gangstead, you know, the most basic need of people is to connect and feel connected. And I feel like when I walked into that room that she had been where I was and she believed that I wanted to be a great coach and teacher on an ever-increasing stage and she could see me for who I was and knew that if I was given the opportunity and pushed and held accountable that I could continue to grow as an educator and a person. And, and really took a risk, you know, I took a risk. It was a huge, I was never the best student, never the best student. I never won any awards, but I got my PhD at, at 27, 28. Um, I got full professor at 35 at a school very similar to, to Southern Mississippi, uh, have a, a prolific career at, at MTSU. And so I'd say I made good on my promise. If you give me a chance, I promise you, I will go out and and try to change the world. And so uh, I will always be thankful for my time and the the people, uh, Dr. Dennis Phillips and and the people that made a huge impact on me during my time in my graduate work at at Southern Mississippi. That's awesome. You know, I, I think at the start of the conversation, we talked about the importance of belief and how belief really precedes the ability to have a vision. So w- at what point in your career did that kind of click for you and, and, and then you decided to make that really your life's purpose to a certain degree? Well, there's so many ways to answer that question. And, and you know, I struggle with the word belief. I know what I believe in, and I could tell you some very foundational pieces to that, but I think we live in a society where belief is is not something that is appreciated, not something that is intentional, and not something that's certainly taught. And and here's what I mean by that: if you look at Facebook, Snapchat, LinkedIn, uh, any social media, Twitter, it, it absolutely destroys any ability to develop belief. I was raised by people that emulated their beliefs about development of people and education, 
And so when I share these things with you, that probably makes sense about why they're the things I believe. And so I'll give you an example. I believe the two greatest opportunities we have on a college campus and in life, the two greatest opportunities are one, to first help people find their voice and voices, the intersection of talent and passion and conscience and need in the world. And two, once they find their voice, to teach them how to develop, protect and maintain their confidence. And what I believe is if you can help people find their voice and learn how to develop, protect and maintain their confidence, there's not anything that they can't do. Now, if we lined up 100 people and we said, we want you to tell us what you believe and you can't talk about America, religion or spirituality and your family, tell me what those things are. And I would submit to you that that 80 to 90 percent of those people, if not higher, couldn't tell you anything because we don't live in a society that challenges it. We don't live in a society that gives you the ability to develop it. And the beliefs that I came to were born out of the adversity and the struggle that I had through coaches and teachers and mentors and the relationships that were inherent to those kinds of experiences. So I think belief is born out of that adversity. I mean, one of the other things that I truly believe is that you, to, to really be an entrepreneur, to have that entrepreneurial spirit before the vision, one of the things that you have to do is use, learn how to use adversity to accelerate growth. How It's a mindset, how to use adversity to accelerate growth. I played football at Millsaps College in Jackson, Mississippi for a guy named Tommy Raniger. I would go in every August 27th or 28th and try to quit. I would call my dad, Wayne Williams, Better School, School for Better Living and Better People. And I would say, I'm going to quit. My dad would say, well, Colby, that's your decision. I can't do that for you. And I'd go over there and i quit. And Raniger would sit there and look at me, which felt like an eternity. And he'd say, well, I'll see you on the field in 10 minutes. Go put your pads on. And I go down there and put my pads on. I go out to the field. I go through practice. I'd make it through practice in tears. I'd come back off and um, live another day. And I'll never forget, there's so many defining moments. So what the science says is that there's six or seven defining moments, most of them happened in our 20s that set the trajectory for our lives. And we were playing Suwannee up on the mountain. And I can't remember if we lost by 7, 14, but we lost. And he got the whole team together. And I can still smell the diesel fume, the bus fumes, where I'm sitting there and I've still got my pads on and no shirt. I'm holding my shoulder pads. And he said, boys, do y'all know we lost the game today? And I don't, I didn't make contact, eye contact with the guy because I was scared to death of him. And and he said, he didn't, he didn't wait for an answer. He said, because Corey, he did not call me Colby because he thought to himself, he told me one day, who would name their child Colby? <laughs> and he said, because Corey don't know how to play defensive tackle. So if you see him, tell him, Corey, you lost the game for us. And so Flint Minshew, who was a guy that was ahead of me and played defensive tackle too, he's, I'm getting on the bus and he says, Colby, he's a, He's a country guy. He says, Kobe, Coach Rander only picks on people he likes. And he goes, in hell, he must love you. And so, you know, when I got to Southern Miss, when I started the football program at Bellhaven, I would always reflect back to that moment where I put my Walkman in. I had my Better Than Ezra tape, and I would listen to that tape laying in the bottom of a bus where dip spits going up and down your back, and my back hurt so bad. And I said, if this is the best they can do, then I'm going to be okay. And so let me specifically answer your question about belief. In the beginning of my life, I was motivated by fear. 
And that's not healthy. I was motivated by not being successful. I was motivated by I could not go home and not be the most successful person in the room. I don't know where I got that. And I think maybe part of it was at the school that I attended where they, they truly part of their mission was to develop, the, you know, the next generation of leaders. But but leadership for them was about finding your voice. And then once you find your voice, help others find their voice. And so I think belief can be taught. But I think you got to be intentional about it. I think you got to have some real adversity so that you can sit in your own pain. Th- think about our own societies. What do the Greeks do to explain away God? What do they do? They created philosophy to take away pain. What do they do? They created medicine. And if you look at the the only civilization that truly said, no, you're going to sit in this pain and you're going to feel it. It's the Hebrew civilization. And I think there's there's a great lesson to be learned. in if you really want to develop your belief system is to sit in that pain. I remember when I started at Southern Miss and, and I made $6,000 a year as a as a graduate assistant. I was broke and scared. And all the rest of my friends were, you know, uh, pharmaceutical sales, doing all this, these, these other types of sales. And I could have gotten into sales and I could have sold a million to, I would have been the top sales producer in the, in the, in the room. But it's not what I wanted to do. I wanted to coach and teach on an ever-increasing stage. And when you sit in that pain of making $6,000 and you tell yourself, man, one day, one day, I am going to be in a place where I can change the world, then you really start to develop your belief structure. This episode is brought to you by the Lawton Marketing Group, a full-service advertising and design agency specializing in websites, social media, apps, logos, and more. Based in Oklahoma, they work with clients across the nation from small businesses to large corporations and everything in between. You can find them right now on the web at www.lawtonmg.com or call them at 580-275-2063. Connect with them now for a complimentary competitive analysis of your website. Just tell them the impact entrepreneur told you to call. I want to back up because there's a lot of things that you've covered in the last couple of minutes, and I don't want to lose the opportunity to to unpack them a little bit. But one of the things that you just said now is the true definition of passion. The word passion is rooted in in the Latin word paseo, which means essentially the willingness to suffer for some suffer for something. And too many people in the in the world today are they don't. They hear the word suffer and they cringe, but they cringe because they're, they're not making the right choice because we have the power in our mind to choose how we use that suffering and how we perceive that suffering. And if we choose to perceive the, the pain or the suffering the right way, it actually won't be pain or suffering. It will lead to something else. and. And I think that that is the that that ability to make that choice comes after the whole finding the voice thing. So I I totally am fascinated by that. I think that that is definitely the first step in in helping people restore the the belief in their ability to do something. The challenge I think that people like you and myself face is that 
people today just want someone else to tell them what their voice is. So how do you coach your students and your your clients to find their voice? Great question. And, and so, you know, Frankel said it best when he said the, that the most powerful human freedom is the power to choose between stimulus and response is the most powerful human freedom. And it's the power to choose. It's what separates us from everyone else. And, and so when adversity happens, it's not it's not why is this happening to me? It's what is this trying to teach me? And so you ask a very specific question about finding your voice. Here's here's what I know. And, and you know, people, some people can't handle what we're talking about. And that's okay. Some 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 people will not get it, and they're not my people. And so voice, as we said, is the intersection of talent and passion and conscience and need in the world. You were onboarded, factory installed with something. I was, and it was my eyes. And because of my eyes, I was taught by myself and by others how to use adversity to accelerate growth. How do you struggle to think better, communicate better, and make better decisions? That's God-given. That ability to have that onboarding and know what that is, is, is part of your responsibility in life. Passion is a word that we have absolutely prostituted. And so you line up 20 people today, and I'm going to answer your question, but I want to set the stage here. Passion to me used to be, what would you drive two states over to talk about for free? And I did it. I started a college football team in 1998. The guy said, I'll hire you because you're so damn persistent. But I can't pay you for the next budget cycle. It starts in six months. I said, I'll be there in the morning with a cup of coffee. And I was. And so I think with this generation after us, we got to move from passion to what are you naturally curious about? All right. So, so talent, passion, subconscious. Boy, this, this continues to change and look no further than the, the political landscape that we have today and what's going on in our country. Conscience. And to me, conscience is meaning, purpose, and contribution. And the need in the world that only you can fulfill. What is the need? See, the, the need in the world that only I can fulfill is you can hire anybody you want to coach you, but there's nobody better in the world that will help, help you coach yourself out of your own mess. Because I have created messes for my life over my entire life, and I have walked my way out of every one of them into success. And so the, the question that you asked is, how do you help people find their voice? When they really want somebody else just to tell them what it is, here's the simple takeaways. People don't want personal development. They want personal change. They don't know this, but this is what they want. They want to change. And you say, well, Colby, that sounds really cool. What is it they want to change? And here's what they want to change. They want to change the script. They want to change the narrative. They don't know this, but this is truly what they want to change. And here's what I figured out by starting the Center for Student Coaching and Success at Middle Tennessee State University. One of my clients provided a seven-figure gift because he had such belief in the work that I'm doing. We all have a script. You have a script. I have a script. Wayne Williams has a script. And that script is either written by yourself or someone's written it for you. And if you really want to change people, if you really want to help them find their voice, the very first thing you have to understand is what their script is. Once you understand what their script is, then the challenge becomes, how do you help them create a new script? How you help them create a new script is through personal assessment. So here's the formula. Personal assessment plus personal coaching plus personal change. At the center, the very first thing that we do is have them take a Harrison assessment, which to me is the most powerful 
assessment on the planet because it measures behavior versus personality. You can't change people's personality. You can change their behavior. In that very first report that I pull, the report is called the Traits and Definitions Report, which sounds very sterile. But then once you pull that report, the very first session is called Your Life Themes. Your Life Themes. Let me tell you, when I knew that this thing was saying was something I wanted to use, it said Colby Jubenville's life themes are warmth, empathy, wants high pay, wants to lead, and influencing. And I thought to myself, I would have never figured that out unless the report had told me that. I, that's right. I would have said it in a very, you know, in a long, drawn-out way, but warmth, empathy, once I pay, wants to lead, influencing. You go down to prefer not to do. Colby prefers not to do. Tolerance of structure and diplomacy. Yes. Yes, that's Colby. So then watch how this works. You asked me a very specific question. So then you're in front of me, and I hand you this, this report, and it has your life themes. And I say, read those life themes to me. And you read them, and, and you say, I say to you, is that right? Do you think based on those defining moments in your life, could you tell me a defining moment that helps me understand why that's your theme? Well, yeah, Dr. G, I can share that with you. So then let's do this. Let's write your old script. And then let's write your new script based on these life themes. People don't want personal development, my friend. They want personal change. Once they start to change incrementally, then you can move them to develop. I love that. And that, that is that is amazing. Um, and I, I'd love to, is that is the Harrison assessment something that's accessible to everybody? Uh, well, I mean, you know, it's, so, so I was so fascinated. It's so crazy how all this works. I was speaking down in Atlanta. I spoke to the Atlanta Falcons, a little career fair they had there. And then somebody heard me, got me to this guy named Mark Potter. And if you go to my website, drjubenville.com, you can listen to the, the interview that I did with Mark Potter. He ended up being a great friend. I'm, I, I speak as a keynote at his conference called The Intimacy of Paper. Which I'm like, why am I speaking? <laughs> it ends up making so much sense later in life. But, you know, I think to myself, Kobe, your life is so weird. You're in Atlanta, Georgia, with people you don't even know talking about the intimacy of paper. Well, I didn't talk about paper. I talked about intimacy for like an hour. And it was so much fun. And out of that, I met this girl named Julie Schur with Harrison Assessment. And I'm not a real smart guy. It takes me a while to figure things out. But I knew what she was talking about was the future. And she hung in there with me for two years. And I went through Harrison Assessment training, and so now I offer Harrison Assessment as part of my coaching. And so to answer your question, if you'll just send me an email, then I can get you to Julie, and you can take the Harrison. And here's the cool thing. Check this out. One assessment, you can pull 75 different reports. Here's one of the key, here's one of the key takeaways she taught me. Colby, people get hired for eligibility. They get fired for suitability. Eligibility is, do you have the diploma? Do you have the years of experience? Do you have the, the uh, career progression? Suitability is, do you have the behavior? Does the behavior align with the culture? People get hired for eligibility. They get fired for suitability. I will email you for sure, and, and I'm sure that you might get other people emailing you also. But the, uh, the, the thing that you said is people want personal change. And, and I love that because. That's the truth. People want change and people aren't afraid of change, but what they are afraid of is the transition between the change and the new script. And so it's it's a process that needs to almost be reverse engineered. And so how do you approach that? Yeah, love it. Great question. 
I heard this guy speak, and this is where I got a lot of this information. Gerald Jellison wrote a book called Managing the Dynamics of Change, The Fastest Path to Creating an Engaged and Productive Workforce. Fascinating speaker. And this is where I took this idea from. Ask me the question more times. So I can make sure I answer it succinctly. So the question is, people, people want change, but they, and they're not afraid of change, but they're afraid of the transition between the, their current reality and their desired reality because they make it bigger in their head than it actually is. So how do you, how do you make it small enough so that they can do it? Here's how we're typically taught that we change people in the world. This comes from the psychologist. Here's what they say. The change happens like this. Think, feel, do. We change the way they think. We change the way they feel. We change the way they do. No. No. Change. Colby Jubenville goes from being a freshman non-starter to a junior starter because of do, feel, think. He changed what he did in the weight room. He changed what he did in practice. He changed what he did with his mindset. That changed the way that he felt about himself and what he could become. That changes the way that he thinks about what the future will look like. I've developed a coaching sheet that I use at the center for. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It's it's kind. Of, it sounds similar to like you know the self-efficacy theory of Dr. Bandura, the moving from I. I think I can to, I know I can to, I can. Yeah, I love, man, Al Bandura stuff. I mean, expectation theory and, and uh, social learning theory. I believe that's Bandura. This stuff is so good. You know, I, I have a sheet, a coaching sheet that I use. And so here's an example of a typical coaching moment. So this kid, Dawson Colling, comes to me and he takes one of my classes. And I said, hey, Dawson, you didn't turn in the exercise. And he puts his head down. He says, no, Dr. Jubenville, I didn't. And I, I'm not interested in failing people. We, we, we got enough failures in the world. But let's give people a chance. If, if they want to start at, at 20 and I can get them to 40, then, then I've done my job. And if they were 40, I can get them 60. But putting them at zero and keeping them zero, nobody gets any better. And so I said, well, Dawson, do you, do you want to take a, a lower grade and turn that in? No, Dr. Jubenville, I don't think I do. Okay, Dawson, well, that's your choice. But, you know, I'm, I'm going to give you to the end of the semester to get that into me. So he never does it. Gets the bad grade. Comes back around. Nobody benefits from any of that. Doesn't learn. Doesn't get the grade. And I catch him in the hallways and I corner him. And I said, do you remember the way you behaved in my class last semester? And he said, yeah. I said, how's your life going? He goes, man, my life's in shambles. I said, I, I bet based on the answer that you gave me, your life's in shambles. And I said, tell me what's going on. Well, I'm, I went out and bought a Dodge Challenger and, and uh, wrecked it and didn't have gap insurance and now owe the difference. And so I said to myself, the very first thing I said is, number one, who, who, who told you it was a good idea to buy Dodge? And number two, um, who told you it was a good idea to buy a new Dodge at, at your stage of your life? And so we unpack it. You know, he's getting bad advice. I won't go too far into that story. And I said, look, let's go back to what you wanted to do. And he said, I said, remind me. And he said, I knew what he was going to say. He said, well, Dr. Jim, I'm going to be a personal trainer. All right. So how, how, what do you think the first thing you got to do to become a personal trainer is? And he said, well, you know, I mean, I'm taking these classes. I said, no. Step number one is to go out and get the basic certification. So there is a meaningful activity. And so he comes and meets me. And we go through this coaching session. I turn the sheet around, and the very first question that it says is, what's the most powerful conclusion that you've come to during our time today together? 
And he wrote on there, I won't write it. Just like you said, he keeps asking me, well, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? Should I say this? And I said, I'm not going to give you the answer. You, you think about it. what's the most powerful conclusion? And he said, what I'm doing isn't working. And I said, yeah. I said, yes. Yeah, there's 60-year-olds that, that can't figure this out. What I'm doing. And so then the next thing it says is, what activity are you committed to in order to address that conclusion? And he said, I will take, you know, whatever this test is by such and such date. And I said, and you write on there, and I will text Dr. Jubinville my score. So he does it, barely passes, goes on an interview. Of 25 people that interview, he's the only one that gets that, that has a certification, he gets the job. He's the worst. He's the worst personal trainer in the group. And I say that with all the most love and respect that I can to this poor kid. And so then he sends me this beautiful email. And he says, Dr. Jevenville, before I came to your center, I would line up my classes end to end and try to figure out how they would help me cross the finish line. You see, we're all taught that there's some magical finish line and that if we'll just get there and cross it, that there's going to be something waiting for us at the end. And what you've shown me is that's just simply not the case. And so my point to you is what are three activities that you're committed to in the next 30 days? You don't measure perfection. You measure progress in 30, 30 day windows. And then you communicate progress because progress is a natural motivator. Now that kid, when, when he when I see him, he just shows up at my door and he laughs. And I said, so you're finally drinking the Kool-Aid. Oh, huh? you're believing. Oh, yeah, Dr. G, I believe you. You know, I didn't before, but but I just uh, I didn't understand. I think that's part of it, man, is look, this world is noisy, distracted, blurry. And, and the expectations that we put on these people, we, we blame these kids. We, shit, we shouldn't blame these kids. We should blame ourselves. Man, the expectations that were put on you and me as children, man, my dad had Colby in sixth grade. Son, you're going to do one of two things. You're going to work for me for free or you're going to find a job. I don't care what you do, but come the first day of summer, you're going to be doing something. Man, my son is 15. He's never cut a blade of grass in his life. <laughs> and it's my, it's my fault. You know, it's, it's, you know, you used a word there uh, with, with, uh, we measure we measure by progress, right? Um, we should. And we don't. We, we should. We, we should, right? And and there's this wonderful quote that um, I think it was Teddy Roosevelt. He said, "Is that comparison is the thief of joy?" <laughs> yeah. And the the reason, if people actually really took time to think about that and think about put that in the context of the world that we live in, specifically with social media, so. What we see is is the end result of people's decades of people's hard work uh, more often than not. So people see you, they see people like, you know, they see celebrities, they see and they think, oh, man, they just arrived on the scene and hit success. Right. And so what ends up happening is you end up comparing yourself to, to everybody else's success. And even if you are doing well in the journey, you're not able to celebrate or enjoy it because you're not, you're not celebrating the progress. You're, you're not, you hit a milestone and it's just a milestone. It's not a victory. And, and you're not able to, to be in the moment and enjoy it because you're constantly comparing yourself to other people and it steals all of the joy. And so when you ultimately arrive at whatever the destination is that you're achieving, you won't even know because you're still comparing. 
Yeah, I, and, and I've uh, at, at different stages of my life, I've suffered uh, suffered through that. So I think that our boy is is one hundred percent right on that. And I think that you know I learned to keep that in check by swimming. That's where I first learned to focus on myself and and not on the competition. Is I, I swam for Spring Hill Swim Club down in Mobile for a guy named Rory Hartley and Rory. We just had our like fortieth reunion. It was probably one of the coolest things. I haven't seen this coach since. Since I was, you know, eight, nine, ten years old, and I was a damn good swimmer. I won High Point uh, down in Mobile, and Mobile is a city of swimmers. And this guy just instilled such belief in me. And he would do it by saying this: "If you don't go to the other end of that pool without taking a breath, I'm going to kickboard with this kickboard." <laughs> you can't do that anymore, but it damn worked. <laughs> so how did how did swimming help you? Stop the comparison conundrum for yourself. Well, because you can't sit there and you can't worry about all you got to It's you against yourself. You're on that block and and you can't rely on anybody else and you can't worry about what anybody else. What I realized finally was if I will just sit there and do that no breather, I'll win the damn race. If I can just do the no breather, I will be right there at it to win the race. And all I got to do is at the last five feet is push a little bit harder than anybody else. And that's all on me. That has nothing to do with anybody else. That just uh, you just got to give a little bit more at the end, and you can do it. And that's what I would do. I would go as hard as I could, and I would get there fifteen feet out, and I was like, "All right." And I could feel you could feel the heat coming up from your back through your neck, through your your heart, to your back, to your neck, to your brain. And man, I would turn it on, and just because I knew what that feeling was going to be like when he grabbed me out of that out of that pool, picked me up, and if you go on my Facebook page, there's a picture, and this is forty thirty years ago, thirty five years ago of him of him holding him up, and he said, "I told you you could do it, told you." And I was like, he goes, now, do you believe me? Can you do it? I was like, yes, sir. I can do this. Powerful moment, man. I love it. That's, that's powerful. That, that is so powerful because that's where you go from, I think I can, to I know I can, to I can. And, and that, that, stuff is, that stuff is like, that stuff is magic, you know? It is. It is. I can remember, I can remember when I first started speaking, you know, it's been years ago, but I would say, can I pull the fire alarm? Can I crawl underneath the table? Can I run at the door? Here's your speaker, Colby Jubenville, scared to death, you know, looking for that first hit like I did in football to calm down. Now, before I walk out on stage in front of thousands of people, I'll say these people have no freaking idea what I'm about to unleash on them. I'm going to find one person and I will make them commit today. And that's the mindset you have to have when you go out in front of thousands of people or or you will find yourself <laughs> begging for mercy at some point along the way. You know, the, uh, the, the student that you gave the example of who, who became that personal trainer, it, it, it's a, it's a living example of, of your definition of potential, which I love, which is potential is energy stored up until utilized. And so here you have that example of this kid who didn't believe that he was capable of doing something specifically because the way he was approaching everything was all backwards. And, and once he took one step, the most basic step, it just, the, the doors open and, and I don't know what it is, but I feel like we are all faced with this, the same conundrum, the whole, you know, Albert Einstein, you know, the definition of insanity is doing something over again, expecting a different result. Like why, why is that a universal truth to a certain degree? Why, why is that something that's not 
it seems so easy and that we should be able to overcome it, yet we all struggle with it. Why? My son was, you know, in my house growing up, it's uh, 7 South Hathaway and 635 Tuthill Lane. We all had jobs, and the jobs were made very clear. And my dad didn't care how we got the jobs done. We just knew what the job was. And he never inspected the method. He always just said, now, do you understand the job? And I'd say, yes. And he says, now, if you don't, if you get to a place where you can't do the job and you need help, then you just let me know. And if I have time, I'm going to help. And so my son's in there and I've literally watched him um, have an aversion to uh, texture of food when it was my responsibility that when everybody left the table, that I was to take the plates, I was to clean them to where the piece of, uh, you know, the, the, the ineffective dishwasher to clean them again. And so um, it was very clear to me about what the expectation was. I was trained on the, the, the way he would do it. And then I could figure out if I want to do it better, how I can do that. And um, my wife um, in her perfectionism and uh, wanting to get it done and be efficient rather than effective grabs it out of his hand and says, you just need to go to school. I'll do it. He lost the opportunity. He lost the opportunity to stand in the adversity and figure out how to clean out the bowl. And I think that's indicative of the society that we live in. We have taken away the opportunity for them to sit in that pain. And the only way you can figure that out is by going through it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's so true. We've we've substituted opportunity for efficiency. Yes. That and, and automation. Yeah, no, that's that's powerful. Effectiveness. Yeah, I mean. If I could, if we had enough time and I could tell you about the businesses that I've started and failed and, and the pain that you go through, you know, my wife was a teacher and, and she came home one day and said, I can't teach anymore. And I said, well, quit. And, and she said, well, what are we going to do if you quit? And I said, but I don't know, but if you don't do it, we'll never figure it out. So I wrote the letter and, and I didn't think she was going to sign it. And she signed it and turned it in. And that's when I started this little agency called Red Herring Innovation and Design. I had no idea what my value was to the world. I had no idea who my ideal client was. I had no idea how to write a proposal. I've never been trained classically in business. And for 18 months, I didn't make a dollar. Now, here's the defining moment. She got, I've known my wife since seventh grade, but we're one of those passionate, committed people you've ever met. And, and we didn't get back together until later in life, 28, 29, 27, 28, when I had quit, uh, decided to quit acting like a fool. And, um, she got right up in my face and she said, Colby, you must feel like such a less of a man that you can't provide for your family. And I said, Kate, I'm going to make it big one day. And when I do, you're going to be the first one to thank me. And in that moment, I walked out the door in tears and I said to myself, Colby, you better go get around people a whole lot better than you because what you're doing isn't working. And I did. Now, here's the here's the takeaway. When's that going to happen for somebody in your audience? When's that going to happen for somebody, uh, somebody's child? When are you going to let them have that opportunity? Because if they never have the opportunity, it's never going to happen. Man, uh, that I love that. And, And one of the things I talk about is the story of David versus Goliath and specifically the moment. Because what you're what you are talking about is 
David experienced when he stood before King Saul and he and King Saul said, you could fight Goliath, but you have to wear my armor first. You, you can only do it if you wear my armor. So he put his armor on David and David realized I can, I'm not going to be effective if I if I wear somebody else's armor. And so he had to strip that armor and go out and face Goliath using only what he had and, and, and his own skill set. And it's a similar thing where we, you know, in life, we, we've got to give, we can't put our, our armor on other people because we, we love them and we want to them, we fear for them, or we merely are focused on our own self-preservation or wanting to get something done quicker. We have to let people fail and face their fears and do challenging things and, and, and allow them the opportunity to witness themselves overcoming stuff, which I, I totally am, am all about. And I, I had this interview with um, Tom Bilyeu, who is the uh, co-founder of Quest Nutrition. And, you know, they're a billion-dollar company. And they, he recently left Quest Nutrition to start this thing called Impact Theory. And we, we were talking, and he used the example of, uh, you've seen the movie Amadeus? Oh, yeah. So he, he uses the example of Solieri, right? The character Solieri was really, really good, and he was really gifted and really talented. And he had to work hard at, what he, at, at his craft to be good. And then along comes Mozart, who is just this natural, gifted person. And what ends up happening to Solieri? He ends up quitting and giving up. He's not going to ever be as good as Mozart. And I believe he ends up killing himself to, to spoil it for everybody. But, like, you know, we need to, to protect ourselves from, from that very scenario by allowing ourselves to experience adversity and challenges and growing along the way because Solieri could have been just as successful as Mozart. And if he had stayed with it, he may have even been more successful than Mozart. Who knows? You know, as we, uh, as we wrap up the conversation, you know, I have a, a just a few more uh, questions that I always conclude my episodes with, which the first one is if you could pick any skill set that you currently possess and turn it into a superpower, what would it be? Speaking to per- persuasion is, is the centerpiece of business activity. If we really believe that it's about personal change and not personal development, then what's the greatest way to help people understand change and its storytelling? So my superpower would be developing story storytelling in a way that would magically get those people to in the moment, begin the change. Mm, mm, powerful. What are three lies that you think people tell themselves and that prevent them from realizing their full potential? <laughs> oh, man. Well, how about this? I'll say it, I'll say it a different way. I, there's so many lies that I don't know if that's valuable to, to go down. The, um what does Jim Rohn say? Don't wish it was easier. Wish you were better. It ain't ever going to get easier. You're going to have to get better. Don't wish for less problems. Wish for more skill. The, the problems are going to keep coming. Go out and develop your skill. 
chop the wood, carry the water. Uh, I can't think of the third one because I'm just sitting here laughing at myself, thinking about all those lies and the lies that I've told myself. <laughs> It'll get better with time. <laughs> don't wish it was easier. Don't wish you're better. Don't wish for less problems. Wish for more skill. Don't wish for. I can't think. Of, the lesson has to do with wisdom, but man, I'm, I'm putting my own credibility on the spot there. I can't think of that. <laughs> it's okay. We, if you remember it, you can come back to it. But this is the last question. The last question is is a, is from the title of a book by Clay Christensen. Who's a Harvard uh, guy? Oh yeah, he he wrote. Uh, How will you measure your life? That is the that is the question. How will you measure your life? Um, hey man, I, I tell my mother when we talk and have those meaningful moments. If I die tomorrow, I, I've already done what I'm supposed to do. I, I have uh, the kinds of emails and phone calls and and relationships that I've created along the way, and I never wanted to sell somebody else's brand. I always wanted to build my own. And if I look at and reflect on my life from starting a college football team from the ground up, no phones, no computers, no players, no uniforms. There was a piano in my office and I could play it, but it wouldn't help me recruit the right people. We ended up being ranked at one point, uh, I think, you know, 20th in the nation, 21st in the nation. And to start that college football team from the ground up and to see that develop. And then to build a sport management program and then to start this center for student coaching and success that really is the intersection of my talent and passion and conscience and need in the world. I'm pretty proud of, of everything that I've done. The true measure for me in my life is, is to see my children uh, find their voice. And if I can do that and watch that unfold, then, um, then I'll be happy and satisfied. Wow. Dr. Colby Jubinville, this has been an incredibly valuable conversation today, not just for myself, but I'm sure for my audience. And, and I thank you for your time. Hey, thanks for the opportunity to spend some time with, uh, with your audience. And I know that putting this together requires a whole lot of effort and a whole lot of work. And uh, if you'll send me a dress, if I have not sent you, sent you a book, uh, my, my book, Me, How to Sell Who You Are, What You Do, and Why You Matter to the World, I'll send it out to you. I appreciate that. I will definitely, I will definitely do that. All right, my friend. Don't forget about the incredible gifts I have for you. Head over to theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash scorecard and download those resources today. Dr. Colby Jubinville, thank you so much for joining us on the Impact Entrepreneur Show. Incredibly powerful episode. We can overcome any obstacle and develop our self-belief in the midst of struggle by having conversations that we don't want to necessarily have with ourselves, doing things that we don't necessarily want to do to prove to ourselves that we are capable of accomplishing them and believing that we are called to do something greater than we thought was possible. This was an incredible episode. If you missed any of the key points or highlights, we've got you covered over at theimpactentrepreneur.net forward slash 77 for all of the highlights. And while you're there, be sure to check out the Lot Marketing Group and Podcast Masters. We could not do this show without them. Now, until next time, you know what to do. Go make an impact.